Welcome to Intriguing Beings with me, Rue Chater. Episode 10 with G. Atherton. After last week's incredible episode with Alex Jones, I wondered how I was going to follow it up. And as luck would have it, the stars aligned and I found myself at the Kendall Mountain Festival with the opportunity to chat to one of the best downhill mountain bike racers on the planet. G. Atherton has won two world championships and multiple World Cup overall wins. And he's also just recently won the Red Bull Hardline event in the UK, which is one of the toughest mountain biking events that ever happens on the planet. He's competed at Rampage and got on the podium there. He's had the most incredible career racing mountain bikes and this year raced in his 100th downhill World Cup race. And he didn't stop there. He's still carrying on. And as you'll find out in the interview, he's still just as passionate about racing bikes as he was when he first got into it. And he's looking forward to next season already. G was a fantastic guest. I'm sure you'll really enjoy this podcast. We talk about a lot of different things from how he got into bikes and how he discovered bike racing, some of the incredible crashes that he's had and how he's recovered from those, and how he deals with those events, both physically and mentally, which I think traverses all sports, really, and there's a lot to learn from this one. We also chat about the big events like Rampage and Hardline and how he gets involved with those and the challenges that they offer him and also the fact that they scare him a little bit too which is quite an interesting insight as ever and i know i say this every week please share these with your friends uh, give them a thumbs up on social media spread them as far and wide as you can because the more people that are listening to these then the more i get inspired to keep recording them and that means there'll be more episodes every week for you to enjoy i was really honored to get to chat to g he's a great guy and he's super passionate about racing bikes and he's incredibly talented as well but he's very humble with it too anyway let's get into it i really hope you enjoy this latest episode today i'm sat with a gentleman called g atherton uh he's a multiple world champion downhill bike racer who's also won numerous uh world cup downhill overall titles and he's just come back uh, from a very good end to his season, winning uh, the Hardline event in Wales, which his brother created a few years back, and also a second place in La Bresse. Um, so a sort of return to form for G. Uh, we wanted to just get him on the podcast, have a chat with him, because he's had a astounding career, really. Is it 100 World Cup downhill races now? It was, yeah. This year was... Uh... Mont Saint Anne in Canada was my hundredth downhill, which is a huge achievement in that sport. Um, so, Gee, first question for you: Your whole family, you know, your brother and your sister, you're all mad on bikes. How did that start? Well, it was my older brother Dan. You know, he has to take uh, responsibility for it. Really, you know, it was. Um, we were probably ten or eleven years old. You know, he was into bikes. I was just kind of milling around just following my older brother around doing what he was doing and you know one day at a friend's house he was like gee this guy's this lad's got a bike for sale you know do you want it and you know he bought me this bike and from there we would just be out in the woods every day building jumps and, and drops and gaps and you know we weren't aware that there was a, a, a sport and a, and a scene out there we were just filling our time messing around on bikes and you know, from there it advanced. We we started kind of riding BMX and then started racing BMX. And then one of the lads kind of turned up with a mountain bike that everyone was amazed by, you know, had a bit of suspension on the back. And, 
you know, we, we tried it, decided it was quite cool. And, you know, from there, that kind of took us down the mountain bike route. And so back in the early days, when were, when are we talking about in terms of date-wise when you started switching to mountain bikes from BMX? Um, wow, that was probably, um, it must have been around the kind of, it must have been around the 2000 mark, I'd say. Okay. You know, 1999, maybe 2000, we were kind of BMX, bit of mountain biking on that kind of, just riding bikes, you know. Yeah. We, we had motorbikes, mountain bikes, BMXs. If it had two wheels, we'd be on it. Hit a ramp as fast as we could on it, and, and see how far we could go, you know. Yeah, and back then there was quite a good scene in the UK for racing and things like that. So, do you think having that infrastructure for an event series helped you guys nurture your careers in those early days? I think so. Yeah, you know, we would we were we were quite we were we were living in the southwest at the time, so we were quite kind of secluded to that area. You know, we would just be racing. But even so, you know, this there was a, like a local Southwest series that, you know, we were just, we were committed to 100%. We do every round, you know, all around the, you know, it was just in these tiny little minute and a half tracks pushing up. And, you know, we loved it. We would be there every weekend and all through the winter as well. And, you know, it was the, it, it was the greatest thing we'd ever done. You know, we'd spend every evening watching the kind of sprung movies from Alex Rankin and, you know, rewinding and pausing and, and watching sections over and over again, you know, watching Warner, watching Steve Pete, Will Longdon. You know, these were guys that we were just kind of in complete awe of, you know, watching them race and ride. And there was, you know, that's what we wanted to do by then. Yeah. So it's kind of an all consuming passion for you guys. You were eating, sleeping, breathing, yeah, living it, it consuming was. as much as you could. So much so. And like looking back on it now, you know, you realize just how how much it did take over you know we loved it and you know Dan was kind of getting to the point where he was you know when he started finishing school you know a few years after that he was kind of begrudgingly going to college but spending every spare minute he had awake on his bike and you know it soon got to the point where we started racing slightly bigger races you know national series and you know doing quite well with it and you know, once we kind of got a little bit of success and a, a taste for that kind of that podium, if you like, we started to get a little bit of attention. And you know, the time came when we both managed to win our categories. You know, I was in youth, Dan was in junior. We both managed to win um, our first national round. And you know, suddenly the phone started ringing a little bit, a little bit of kind of, you know, what do you do for for sponsorship? Could we help you out here and there? And you know, oh my God, that was that was <laughs> made it. Oh, that was yeah, that was another level. You know, the fact that someone might want to give you a, you know, a discount on a bike or a, a free pair, a free race shirt. You know, it was we were looking at each other like, wow, what have we stumbled on here? You know, yeah, this is incredible. Who was the first um, kind of bike brand that you started working with seriously? Um, it was Muddy Fox, actually. Yeah, it was Muddy Fox. You know, we'd had a bit of support from from bike shops before that. But, you know, it was Muddy Fox were the first people we were like, you know, we're going to sponsor you. Here's a free bike. Wow. And we were like, <laughs> wow, this is, you know, that was incredible. Because, you know, we'd spent every minute trying to scrape money together. You know, down a mountain bike is not a cheap sport to get into. You know, it's, it's when, you're, when you're 15 years old, it's, it's tough to get into. And, you know, dad would help us out. But every time we got on the bike, we'd snap something or rip something off and, you know, we spend all our time trying to budget back together, trying to mend it. If we had to buy something new, we would kind of scrape together a few quid and, and dad would help us out and we'd, and we'd buy it. But, 
you know, once we started getting a little bit of support, that enabled us to take the racing a little bit further. And, you know, we started to kind of creep towards that, you know, maybe this is something we could do in the future. Maybe we could try and race abroad a little bit. Yeah. You know, this was suddenly a kind of a possibility. Yeah, a sort of reality that this could become a career, I guess. Yeah, not at that point. Uh, we were still, there was still never any kind of, you know, there was still never any question that we would maybe do this professionally as a job. You know, if we could, if we kind of thought there might be a chance of us, you know, getting abroad and racing a few World Cups and, and kind of seeing how we got on at those, that was, that was it really. You know, I, there was never a goal from either of us really, I don't think that we were going to be like, yeah, professionals getting paid to do it, travel the world, do this for our careers. You know, that was never, that was way, that was way, way too far down. away from us. Yeah, That's quite interesting because a lot of people are quite, you know, they set these goals and they go after them and they're sort of so driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's quite interesting to hear that, you know, you've achieved all of that. But in the early days, it was just, you know, it still wasn't even on your mind to think that that was a possibility. But I think the the difference between a goal and, a, and, and just a dream is, you know, a goal, you have to, you have to be able to see how it could happen. You have to be able to see the path that you would have to take and the boxes you would have to tick for it to suddenly become a reality. And for me personally, I, you know, I didn't really dream about that. And I don't think it was until, you know, I was... I was literally like winning World Cups and getting paid as a kind of professional athlete before I was suddenly like, you know, this is actually my job now. Yeah, this could be realization hit, you know, this is actually what I'm doing now. And, you know, it wasn't until I was really far down the line with it that it kind of suddenly sunk in as to as to what I kind of got myself into. Did you have an idea? And this is a weird question, but I'm going to ask. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do before that was? So were you like, I want to be you know, a policeman or a fireman or anything like that? Did you have a sort of a career that you thought you were going to go down that just never materialised? Or were you just one of these big kids that just didn't really know what, what you wanted to do? No, I was completely that kid, you know. You know, people, and it surprises people when I tell them this, but, you know, as an athlete, they expect you to be this superhuman, driven, you know, everything mapped out from an early stage, but like planned life. But I was just riding bikes, not... I'd, you know, I had no clue what I wanted to do for a job. You know, I'd planned to go to sixth form after school just because I had nothing better to do. And, you know, I was just choosing the path that meant I had the most free time so I could go and ride my bike, you know, because that's all I love to do. And so, you know, I started riding bikes and, and racing bikes because there was no other kind of, there was no other goal in my life or, you know, there was no other passion. And we were kind of in a van with some friends, a mate mechanic in for us, going off to race World Cups. And even then, still, it was just uh, something we were doing because we loved it, you know, and because we'd grown up watching videos of other people do it. That's quite interesting because I guess some people maybe go into these sports with that goal of this is what I want to do, this is what I want to do. And there's a few, we've done a few um, podcasts with kite surfers, and I know a few who were like really pushed into like, this is going to be your career, this is your future, this is what you're going to do. And it's interesting to see some of those people like they don't have the longevity when they get it because they're kind of like almost burnt out on it yeah. before they get there. Whereas if you've not had that as your goal and then you suddenly have it, it's like, wow, I've got this now. And then you've got that longevity to carry it on, I guess. Well, I don't think I'd realise, you know, people, it wasn't until people were like, what's it like being a professional athlete? And I was like, why are you asking me that? Well, I just <laughs> race bikes and sometimes get paid to do it, you know, ask, ask, you know, I go and ask another guy. And then it wasn't until a few kind of people had mentioned it and I was like, well, maybe, yeah, 
I guess I am an athlete if you look at it like that. But no, that was never the case. And and I'm glad for that, you know. I would never I wouldn't have changed that at all because, you know, I can't think how it would have felt to be lining up on a start line of my first World Cup at, you know, seventeen years old, thinking, right, this is my career on the line, don't blow it. Because, you know, I was some dorky geeky little kid on a bike that was a bit shonky in my brother's old race kit, racing down the hill seeing how fast I could go and you know when you're that young that's there's no better way to get into it really you yeah know, you're racing you have to be racing carefree you know you don't want the world on your shoulders you know you want to be on the line race taking as many risks as possible kind of laying everything on the line to to show people what you can do and you know you don't want to be thinking right sponsors are watching I don't want to blow this this is my career this is my future you know, they're not thoughts you need in your head when you're 17 years old yeah and so when you, you, the sort of first big team, I guess, that you were part of was the, sort of the major, major media machine of the Commonsal um, Atherton project that mm. you got into. How did that then change when you're sat at the start line and all of a sudden it is now a job? Was that changing your mindset and you were thinking, I've got to do well, I've got to keep the sponsors happy? Or were you still racing kind of carefree and just enjoying it, I guess? No, I, I don't think it had changed by then because, you know, we crept into it and it was very organic, you know, it was very natural. It was quite a, you know, it was a relatively slow process, which gave me the time to, to learn to deal with it. You know, I wasn't suddenly thrust into this limelight and, you know, shocked as to what it was like. You know, I crept, it felt to me like quite slowly, you know, like, so every race I learned how to deal with a little bit more pressure. I learned how to deal with the media or someone taking a photo of me. You know, I was... I was learning this kind of this craft as I went along and and I think that's what you need and I've seen it now you know we've run a professional team for a long time now and often we'll take a youngster on and you know we'll be like this guy's a great rider but we're going to give him a mechanic we'll give him a masseur you know he's got a cook he's got access to anything he wants you know he can travel and train anywhere in the world you know anything he says we can supply for him and and you see them racing and they don't do well from it you know they don't they don't always you know it doesn't help them yeah you know it it, it it's too much for them to carry if you like yeah you, know, you see you see people trying to trying to deal with it at races and their first world cup on that kind of team with suddenly this massive setup and people asking for their autographs and taking photos with them and you know it inevitably it's it's tough for them to race with that really and I'm I'm thankful that I didn't kind of have that when I was young. Yeah, so you got to organically grow into it rather yeah. than being thrust into it. Yeah, I guess exactly. that's where you've got, there's quite a lot of really young talents that come on board these days and suddenly, you know, there's some new kid on the block and they're only 14 or 15 and they're getting big money sponsorship thrown at them and it's, I guess, because as the sport's grown, it's become much bigger in itself. So there's that urge to thrust people to the front of it. Yeah, I think, like you say, you know, the sport is a lot bigger now. It has grown, and 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 with that, it kind of brings other elements that are, you know, harder to deal with when you're young. But you know, some riders deal with it better than others, and some riders you you see, and it's a shame, you know, because they're amazing talents on a bike, but they struggle to deal with that kind of that race mentality and the, and that pressure of that environment, and and you see it work in an adverse effect on them. You know, you mentioned um, the team there, and one of the things I think that impresses me about, you know, the Atherton brand, I guess, is behind the scenes, there are a lot of people making it happen. You know, it's not just you guys turning up to a race and having a go. 
Um, these days, how different is it from those early days in terms of who you take with you when you go to a World Cup race? Yeah, it, it is a big team now, but you know, they're mainly for my sister because she's quite high maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> I could still turn up to the World Cup with just my mechanic and have a great weekend, you know, but <laughs> Rach is there, so we need a chef, we need a masseur, we need a guy who's going to help her with, you know, any pressure she might be feeling, someone to take care of the media stuff. But no, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's just down to this kind of we've raced for a long time we've kind of we've been really lucky to be able to run our own team and not always be kind of at the mercy of a, a commercial sponsor and you know we've that's given us the freedom to kind of learn what what makes a, a good team you know what makes a, a group of athletes that little bit better and you know we've learned things over the years that you know, having these extra people at a race, they don't they don't make you race downhill faster. You know, it's not like you're suddenly going to be able to carry more speed through this turn because you've got a masseur waiting for you at the bottom. But it gives you that longevity to be able to have a long, rough race season and get to the end of it in one piece and come back the year after and do it again and come back the year after and do it again and again and again. And I think that's why me and my sister have been so lucky because, you know, we've had a great team around us and, and that is key to being able to to come back and and succeed in a you know a relatively rough sport. Yeah, because it takes quite a bit of toll on your body, mountain biking. You know, and if you've got a six minute track or something like that, by the time you get to the bottom of it, you're beaten up. One of the big issues, I think, for anyone who rides mountain bikes, and I say this with a bit of knowledge myself, because I broke my ankle three months ago in the mm. Alps riding. Mm. Um, and it, it's a sport that, you know, people said to me, oh, why, why are you riding so fast? And I don't ride that fast. But they're like, oh, you should slow down, slow down. It's like, well, as with mountain biking, the better you get, the faster you go, but you still crash. Even the World Cup winners crash. Everybody crashes a mountain bike. It just depends how you crash and how you fall off. And you've had some belters over the years. Is there any one particular crash that sort of sticks out that either from the resulting injuries were terrible or just the actual crash itself was the one that you go, that was the, the gnarliest one I've had? Yeah, I don't know. Like you say, I've got quite a few to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one. I mean, some of the most spectacular crashes, you know, people are like, oh my God, that rampage crash I saw you have so many years ago. I've watched that video. Like, how did you survive that? And, you know, I was fine from that. I remember having a, it was a wild crash and I was just tumbling through the air and rocks and through the dirt, but I was all right, really. And then other crashes, you know, that I've had at a World Cup where you've been belting down the hill and you fly offline and you smash into a tree and, you know, no one's there to see it and it just beats you to pieces. And, you know, they're the, sometimes the worst ones, but I think they're all unique in their, their own way and they're all memorable for, for certain reasons. I mean... I I try and, you know, just ignore them and move on from them and don't dwell on them too much because, you know, like you say, everyone crashes a mountain bike, you know, it's it's what mountain biking is, isn't it? And we do a lot of training and a lot of strength training to kind of give our bodies the best chance so when we do crash we can, you know, hopefully bounce and get back up. But, you know, often that doesn't happen and often you do crash and, and stay down for a bit, but I guess that comes back to that team of people around you. Yeah, you know, the quicker, the quicker you can get back into circulation and moving and back on a bike and, and back to that racing, the better. You know, because every every week you spend away from the race circuit is is time you're kind of losing that edge and, and losing that kind of that ability to walk that line, if you like. 
And what's your worst injury, do you think, from this sport? Hard to say. Worst personally is smashing my balls because that is just miserable. <laughs> that video's on the internet, isn't it? Oh, it is, uh, I'll yeah. add that into the link. Oh, and it's horrific. And they're the ones where you lay on the floor thinking, why do I do this? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think, you know, obviously the, the, the big obvious ones like the, the snow crash I had in teens years ago, the, you know, crashes I've had at Red Bull Rampage, you know, last year's crash in Fort William was quite a bad one that put me up quite a long time. And I was quite, you know, that was quite a, that was one that was personally bad for me because of the kind of the trauma I had after the, after the crash. You know, when you hurt yourself, you crash, you hurt, you're in hospital, you recover. And that was a long period of being injured, being on the floor, you know, getting evacuated off the mountain being assessed like that period seemed a lot longer than other times and so it seemed to kind of burn into my memory a little bit more you know yeah like I dislocated my hip and fractured some vertebrae knocked myself out and you know my hip was out for a long time my hip was out for six hours and it's not good I was in a bad place you know and it was it was a rough it was a rough few days so that seemed to stay with me a little bit longer than other injuries did but you know it was just a case of getting back on the bike, plugging away at the, the, the racing and, you know, learning to kind of race, ignoring that, if you like. And yeah. inevitably, I was, you know, I got back up to speed. I had some good results last year or this year and, you know, put it behind me. Yeah, it must be um, mentally quite tough. And I'll talk about the physicality of it in a minute. But how do you deal with that kind of downtime off the bike? Because you're, you know, you're very evidently so passionate about riding bikes. So when all of a sudden you're sat in hospital and you're going, oh, I can't ride a bike for two months or three months or whatever. How do you deal with that time when you can't do the thing that you love? Well, if I use last year's crash as an example, because that's the most recent, recent you know, that was, that was a, a, a good example of going through every single kind of emotion, like, I remember hitting the, it was a race run it happened in, so I remember hitting the jump and getting kicked forward, my ass hit the wheel, I got thrown off the bike, you know, going through the air, I remember the exact feelings of like, thinking, damn, I'm crashing, you know, I remember hitting the floor, like ragdolling, I knocked myself out, my hip was out of its socket, and I remember standing up and, and falling back down and, you know, realising what I'd done, and there was a few you know, there were a few seconds when I was on the floor to start with and all I could think of was bollocks. Like, I've, I've messed this race run up. <laughs> you know, I, I just broke my back, I dislocated my hip, I was on, like, semi-conscious. And I was like, I was I was gutted that I'd blown it, you know, because I felt fast and I was enjoying the weekend and thought William was a big one to me. I remember lying on the floor thinking, fuck, I've, I've messed this race run up. And then that kind of subsided as bloody the, the pain, you know, all took over and whatnot. Then I went to that kind of completely over it, didn't want to race bikes ever again, hated what I'd done to myself. And that's the that's your mind's way of dealing with the injury. You know, you have to tell yourself, I'm not going to ride anymore. I'm not going to do this to myself again because that's the only way you can cope with it at the time. You know, two days later, I'm there trying to persuade the doctor that I will be able to race, you know, in a few weeks and asking how long till I can get back on the bike. And, you know, from that, from that kind of moment, then it was that... Not the easy part, but then you've got a really clear goal. You're like, right, I want to race. And for me, you know, we were mid-season, so I was like, I want to race by the end of the season. You know, the doctors said, you know, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen, blah, blah, blah. 
you know, I was I was up out of bed after a few more days, you know, testing if I could walk. Quick operation on the hip. They were they were pleased with the the, the recovery, and you know, from that point, it was all about right. What's the next step? Learning to walk. Right, I can walk. Let's go swimming. Let's try and get back in the gym. Now let's try and ride a bike on the street. And it was just a clear process. When can I race? When can I race? And I, I, I you know, seven weeks later, I raced the World Cup, and it was a, it was an incredible, incredible, yeah, it was an incredible feeling to get back on the bike for the second half of that season. You know, it must have been quite painful when you were racing that World Cup, or were you fairly? It was painful, but it was it was more that that nervous. You know, the docs were like, "You shouldn't be doing this. Don't ride a bike." <laughs> but not only with the same, "Don't ride a bike," you know, crashing was. You completely out of the question. <laughs> so you try and race a World Cup thinking, you know, don't fall off, don't dab your foot. It's, you know, that was tough. That was really hard. So, you know, it was all about using all my experience to kind of balance that kind of don't crash, but don't trickle down the hill and not qualify. And, you yeah. know, I had an okay result. I was, you know, I was top 30 and I was over the moon to have done it. And, you know, it was that kind of, I think it was just that proud part of me wanting to prove doctors wrong and, you know, it was probably a stupid thing to do. I should have just given myself a bit more time off. But for me at the time, it was a real personal thing. Yeah. I wanted to race again. And if it helps you and gives you that goal and satisfaction, then that's almost just as important as yeah. listening to the doctors and not doing it. And a recovery, you know, people are always asking, you know, how, how can I speed up my recovery? And there's no better way to speed up a recovery than to have a goal. Because every waking moment you're thinking, right, what can I do to make myself be able to reach that goal, you know? And for me, that was a massive drive. Everything I did was like, is this going to help my hip recover so I can race that World Cup? Yes or no? And that was, you know, everything I did, that was the question I was asking myself, you know, that it was always that decision. Is this going to help? Yes or no? If it's not, don't do it. And it, and it worked, you know, I, I was there. Awesome. And the other thing I was going to talk about was the physicality of it, which you've mentioned before. You know, it is a very brutal sport. In the old days, I remember it was, you know, guys just rocking up to an event, having a few beers, hurtling down the hill, having a laugh, having even more beers afterwards, and then rocking up next weekend and doing the same thing. <laughs> the sport has changed immeasurably now, and it seems like unless you are an athlete at the peak of your fitness, you haven't really got a look in. So you can't really just turn up and drink beers and have fun anymore. You have to take it seriously. And I think you guys, um, you know, certainly yourself, you are an incredible athlete. When did that change come and how did you cope with really starting to, you know, work outside of mountain biking in terms of being fit and strong and weights and, you know, making sure your body was up to what it needed to take? Well, it was quite early on, really. And, you know, I remember people asking me, you know, as an athlete, how do you deal with the sacrifices of having to go out and train every week? And I remember being a bit confused by the question because, you know, for me and my brother at the time, it was, you know, we weren't looking at it that way around. It was more a case of what can we do to mean we're going to get a little bit faster in the next race. And, you know, that's why we started training and that's why we started going to the gym and that's why we started doing sprints and going on road rides because we could see a, a direct correlation between being a bit fitter and a bit stronger and, you know, getting a slightly better result the following weekend. And for us, that was a, you know, why wouldn't we do that? It was all about, you know, how can we go faster? How can we, how can we get better race results? And, you know, we, we realized quite early on, there is a clear correlation between, you know, being fit and strong and, and going fast. So, you know, for us, it was just kind of, it wasn't a question of, is this a sacrifice? Is it, you know, it's a bit of a pain to go to the gym. We were there like 
every minute we could doing as much as we could and you know we were just like sponges for like learning <laughs> how you know what else can we do every time we'd speak to someone who had a bit of experience you know we didn't have coaches but if you would speak to someone we'd be grilling them you know what sprint should we be doing what weight should we be lifting you know what we were doing at the time looking back was probably ridiculous you know it was, <laughs> most coaches would be like you know what are you doing you idiots but at the time we were we were we were training so that, you know that was that was it that was all we needed to do and these days what's your what's your week look like in terms of training regime obviously it's the off season now but when you're in the middle of the season what are you kind of doing around the races to make sure you're fit and ready to go on race day well it it varies a lot you know where you are in the season what's coming up you know the off season's kind of you know, are constantly, constantly changing, you know, even though it's November now, we're still, you know, we're training a bit, we're riding a bit and, you know, it's all about just kind of not letting yourself drop off too much to, so your, your, your start of the season next year is not too much hard work, but, you know, I just, I try and try and keep it fun. I try and change things up. You know, I've raced for a long time now, so I can't just grind away at the same weight session. You know, I can't just go into the gym and do the same thing I did last year because, you know, a routine that works for you last year is not going to work for you again. So it's all about, you know, keeping things fun and fresh and new and exciting and trying to still learn new techniques. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in trying to do that. But at the same time, you know, a huge amount of time on the bikes. It's, you know, that hasn't changed in, in 10 years. Motorbikes, BMXs, riding the trials bike, riding downhill bike, just always riding, riding, riding. And, you know, I think that's what the sport demands, really. Yeah, the more time in the saddle, the better you're going to be. I think you need it because, you know, the, the fitness side is an enormous part of it, but it's not enough. You know, you can't just turn up, you know, as a really good athlete and race down the hill. Your, your technical side has to be, you know, absolutely incredible. You have to be, you have to be sharp to be on the bike. You know, if, if I turn up to a World Cup and I've not ridden for a week, I feel, I feel slow and dull and it takes me ages to get into it. You know, you have to be so sharp when you're going into those World Cups. You know, you get three runs and then you're into time training. So you have to be, your first run down the hill, like you, you, you have to turn up ready for action, you know. Um, you work with quite a lot of brands. You know, the Atherton family has been associated with lots of different brands over the years. Um, obviously, you've got the bike brands, the accessory brands, the, you know, suspension and stuff like that. How involved do you guys get with looking at the design of products and things like that? Do you just ride the stuff they give you or are you giving the, the brands the feedback, certainly for the bikes and things like that, as to how you want them to ride? No, we've always been very involved. And I think that's kind of, that's been a strength of ours for, for a long time. You know, we've quite, we've always had that passion to to look at the products we're using and work with the companies that are giving us those products and say, you know, how can we improve these you know, when we're working with a bike company, you don't want to just turn up and get the bike off them, take a check and, and go and ride the bike. You know, that's not what we're about. And we've we've never worked with companies that have that have been, you know, into that. We've been quite fortunate to be able to work with people that are kind of as passionate about the racing as we are and say, look, you know, what can we do to, to make this bike faster? What can we do to make this product a bit lighter or a bit stronger, make it better at a World Cup? And, you know, we've, we've developed a kind of a talent for it over the years, you know, developing a product, working with engineers, giving them your feedback. You know, we, we, we're good at that now. And, you know, we, we have worked with people where it's been quite commercial and they've not always wanted that feedback. And it's, it's always difficult to, to work with people like that. And 
you know, inevitably those relationships don't always last that long because, you know, we are passionate about developing things. And if someone just wants you to, to ride what they've got and, and do nothing to it, it, it seems like a waste and yeah. it's not something we enjoy, you know. It doesn't hold the interest factor for you guys. Exactly, yeah. We want to be refining things, you know. We want to be, we want to be shaped. You know, every time you ride a bike, you're like, right, I could change this, I could change that and refining it and shaping it and, and turning it into this kind of race machine that's going to give you that half a second extra in the next round. Do you, when you're sort of working on bikes, are you changing them, you know, physically between each round to make them better and tweaking angles and things like that? Have you got tricks and tips that you can use so that you can change the head angle a little bit, you can make the wheelbase a little bit longer without having to get a whole new prototype sent out from the factory? Yeah, yeah, we do a lot of that. You know, early season, we're a, I'll go away with, with my mechanic, Pete. You know, he's, he's an incredibly gifted engineer and he's he's fantastic at being able to look at a bike that I'm riding and say you know that that's good but we could try this we could try that and you know he's got a real talent for for spotting these things and it's a complete you know it's an ongoing process we never at a point in the season where we're like right we're happy let's leave it at that you know we're working with Fox on the suspension adjusting this adjusting that and you change one thing here and then that means you can change something else somewhere else on the bike you know, you'll try a slightly different head angle so your bottom bracket can come up a bit, which means you can run a slight bit extra kind of sag on the suspension, which means your fork has to be a bit firmer here. And that will affect, you know, you can you can run the wheels slightly looser, lacing on the spokes, which means your tire pressure can go down a bit. You know, it's a complete, it's just everything always constantly changing and evolving and moving and advancing, and, you know you have to better stay on top of that you know there's a lot of numbers to deal with there's a lot of there's a lot of data to kind of know what's going on and as an athlete in the mountain biking sport you know that's a big part of it really there's been a lot of um changes in the last sort of 10 years with mountain bikes with wheel sizes and suspension platforms and things like that as a racer what do you think is the biggest fundamental change that's helped you go faster um i think it's the suspension and it's not been, you know, it's not been in the media as like, wow, look what's happened. You know, when suddenly everyone went to 29ers or 27s, it was, you know, it was a tangible thing people could see and, and try and go out and buy and test and, and really notice a difference. But for me, the suspension, you know, we've been with Fox for a long time and, you know, they've, they've advanced and, and they've kind of, they've refined this product to the point where every year you're like, right, this is as good as it can get. They're not, they're not going to bring anything new out now, but, you know, they work with the athletes so close, their R&D is, you know, it goes into such detail that the following year they've refined it again and given you something even better. And, you know, it it blows my mind how good it is now. And, and that is, that's something that's kind of, I'd say that's been the biggest change that's allowed riders to push so hard. And, you know, it's, it's so good now. It's even to where it was five or six years ago, you know. I guess that's the one component that can make it easier on a rider because you, we were talking about you get beaten up when you ride in a six-minute track if you've got some decent suspension that's working really well and that takes it out of your arms and out of your legs a little bit, I guess. I think so, but you know, it's all about just giving you a tool that allows you to push a little bit harder. You know, you're still getting to the bottom of the track battered and beaten to pieces, but it's allowed you to push a little bit further. You know, you've got a bit more traction so you can hit that turn a little bit faster and you know, it's it's probably one of the areas I guess the general public know least about. You know, you, it's hard to get your head around 
the difference between high speed compression and low speed compression, you know, because without an engineer there to explain it to you, you know, it's it's difficult to to understand. But I think it's the area when you kind of start looking into and start working on it's the one of the areas you can make the most gains really. And so a hundred um races over the years, over well, over a hundred now at the end of the season, is there one that sticks out for you as one that you look back on and if you could race that race again tomorrow? you jump right in and have a go at it again. Yeah, there's quite a few actually. I think, um, you know, races stand out for different reasons. Obviously, there's been really bad races that have stood out for me where I've thought, you know, God, I'd just love to do that again and change so many things. And then there's others that have stood out because everything's just gone perfectly and you think, wow, that's just, you know, a dream weekend. You know, the first time me and Rachel won world champs on the same day. You know, that was something that didn't really sink in for weeks and weeks you know, until afterwards. And the first time I won in Fort William, you know, in front of a home crowd and that, that roar of energy from, from those guys was, you know, I don't think I'll ever forget that. You know, winning first time me, Dan and Rachel won on the same day. You know, these are all, these are all moments that, you know, when I'm an old man looking back, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll remember that feeling I had at the time. And then other events, you know, where you've, where you've crashed and things have just gone all wrong for you. They, they stay with you as well. So, you know, I think that's the thing about about not just mountain biking but sport in general. It's such a raw, real feeling that you know it it, it burns itself into you and really stays with you. I think. There's um, you know, you obviously had the fantastic win at um, Hardline this year, mm. and that's an event that's obviously very close to your heart because Dan's been the driving force behind it yeah. ever since its inception. What do you think is the the biggest difference between something like Hardline and something like Rampage. You've been to both of those events. I mean, we normally, when we talk about Hardline, we're like it's the UK or European version of Rampage. Is it that close of an anomaly or are they two things that are still poles apart or do you think they can be talked about in the same sentence? No, I think there's, yeah, there's huge similarities. You know, it's it's all about just taking a small group of athletes to such a kind of unique environment and kind of pushing them into there and, and seeing what they can do you know it's like a it's like a little pressure pot isn't it you know you put in these really talented gifted athletes and and say right we're all going to sit back and watch and you know what what takes place is inevitably you know amazing to see and, and always kind of incredible to to watch and witness you know rampage is you know there's nothing that compares to rampage because you know what the riders are doing there is pushing the is pushing the limits every year and it, it blows my mind still to watch but you know hardline is is similar you know it's it's enormous it's terrifying it's it's putting really gifted talented athletes into an environment where they're nervous and apprehensive and unsure if they can do it and you know you add that race element to it as well where they've got to go down this track that the day before they were terrified of even riding and now they've got to do it as fast as they can trying to knock you know tenths of a second off and then you put a bit of rain in there as well and it's suddenly <laughs> you just you know it comes a different animal you're thinking what you know what why are the, the riders are all just sat there terrified thinking why are we doing this but they all throw themselves at it you know this it was amazing every rider there was just committed to it so well and you know they pushed so hard and it was it was fantastic to see you know riders really out of their comfort zones but but stepping up to it and, and dealing with it and kind of and, and taking it on. And you've allowed um, more people to come and watch the event now, haven't you? Because the first event, I think, was sort of run under a sort of 
quite a low key affair yeah. with a few select <laughs> media invitees and then it went out whereas this year there was you know a few thousand people there how's that changed the vibe of the event um it's cool you know i'd love to see more people there obviously you're, you're dealing with the the constraints of a welsh hillside so it's tricky to kind of get that many people up there but you know the first year was was different no one knew what was going to happen no one knew what the event was going to you know how it would work out and you know, a lot of people got hurt that first year. You know, we lost like fifty percent of the riders were injured. So you know, it was lucky not not many people were there. But now, you know, the events kind of settled in a bit. You know what's going to happen, and 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 people come along to watch, and they're always, you know, it's amazing to see their reactions. People just kind of stood with their mouths open watching you jump off this cliff and land somewhere else, and you know, it blows their minds. And that's quite a cool thing to see, really. Is there any sort of um, jumps or drops or you know features at some of these events where you've rocked up and just gone oh my god I don't want to throw myself off that yes <laughs> definitely <laughs> you know we were we were there testing we had to go up to Hardline to test all the jumps you know a few weeks before the event and that was quite an intimidating thing to do because you turn up you know there's no fanfare to it. There's no there's no cameras, there's no lights, there's no crowds and spectators. You know, it's you and a couple of other lads riding, you know, a few paramedics to keep an eye on you and, and a couple of course builders. You know, it's quite a, a low-key event, but you have to test all these jumps and try, you know, see if they work. Which is, you know, you're coming down this forest as fast as you can go and hitting this jump that no one's ever hit before. And, you know, the only gauge you've got is your kind of your skills as a rider you know how fast do I hit this and and you know a miscalculation either way too short or too far is going to cost you you know serious injury and you've got you know 15 20 obstacles that you've got to tackle down this mountainside and you know it's just me and my brother working our way down testing jump after jump and hitting the right speed to make that take off and land in perfect and everything has to be perfect you know you can't afford you can't say oh I came up a bit short on that but it's alright you know you come up a bit short on a 70 foot gap you're going to lose both ankles you know (laughs) and there's just jump after jump and drop after drop and each one has to link into the next one perfectly and you know that's there's definitely times where you're at the top of that mountain thinking I'm not enjoying myself here. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, um, you know, Dan, your brother, he's the guy that creates that event and puts the jumps in and stuff like that. You must have a fair bit of faith that when you rock up and you see a 70-foot gap and you're like, really? But are you thinking, oh, Dan's done it, so mm. it'll be okay? Yeah, definitely. And he's the reason why I'm happy to go along and test something like that because, you know, if someone else had built it, I, I wouldn't have that faith. You know, I wouldn't have that trust in them. I'd say, you know, why Why do you think if I land on this jump, on the landing perfectly and then put two cranks in that I'm going to have enough speed to clear this, you know, this next 70 foot gap? But because Dan says that's true, I, I trust him and inevitably it is, it is right, you know. Yeah. You know, there have been times where he's had a bit of a miscalculation and I've tested something and it's gone horribly wrong or, <laughs> or he's tried it and he's, you know, bust himself up. But the majority of the time, he knows my riding well enough and I trust his building enough that we can work so well together. And, you know, when we're up there testing jumps, we, that kind of, that, that bond that we have is, is what kind of allows us to, to kind of work so well together. You must have an incredible amount of faith in each other, I guess. Like his faith in your abilities and your faith in his abilities. Yeah, and stuff. It, yeah, we have. But it does waver, you know. 
we'll be there <laughs> both on the bikes at the top of the run in thinking right that's a bloody big jump and you know he's confident when he's there building it but then suddenly when we're kitted up helmets on, on bikes. it's time to do it we're both suddenly like do you think we're going fast enough and you see these questions come you know niggling into to your mind but you know inevitably you just have to you know I trust what he does you know he's a very talented not only builder but rider as well and you know he knows what he's doing and that allows him to build an event like Hardline and, and build it with such precision and you know allow him to create obstacles that the riders are you know making inch perfect have you got any interest to go back to Rampage after winning Hardline this year? I have, yeah. You know, I've got a huge respect for, for Rampage as an event. And, you know, I was out there this year watching and doing some filming. And, you know, it made, it gave me this, yeah, it, it, it really made me want to do it again. Yeah, I would, I would love to be back there, you know. If I could, you know, I don't know. I would love to be there. It's an amazing event. And, you know, I've done it, I've done it quite a few times and I've got this kind of, you know, it's a it's a long term love affair with that place. You know, it's a beautiful spot, isn't it? It's incredible, it's yeah, and it's such a unique place. And you know, when I get out there, I get you know, it gives you the shivers. You know, you you like you're back at Rampage, and there's nowhere else like it in the world. And you know, been back watching this year, those those guys all up there building and riding and trying their lines. It it, it made me want to do it again. And you know, I've got a, I've got such a passion for that event. It's it's absolutely incredible. You've um, obviously ridden your mountain bike in probably some of the most incredible places in the world and you've been to some of the best tracks and ridden the best spots. If you could only ride your mountain bike in one area for the rest of your life, where would you pick? Oh, wow. Well, I'd have to say the local trails around where I live because, you know, they're they're built by guys that we ride with every day. They're they're, they're absolutely amazing to ride. They're terrifying. They're wet and slippy and absolutely, you know, some of the hardest trails to ride. But, you know, I can go out week after week and ride them and they're constantly changing. And, you know, they're still a challenge for me after all these years. So, you know, for me, that's what I enjoy riding. And I think anything that's going to make me feel like I don't know what I'm doing and make it a real struggle is, is something I'm passionate about. Keep you interested. And keep yeah, you it keeps me sharp. It. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And you've obviously had this huge long career. Everyone's always asking, you know, what's next? You obviously come across very passionate still about racing. Is that still your main focus at the moment? It is, yeah. You know, the racing is, it's it's what I love and it's it's still 100% the main goal for me. You know, we've got a project coming next year that I'm, I'm very excited about. You know, I can't say much about it at this point, but you know, it won't be long until we kind of have some news on it. And, you know, that takes into a, account a, a few different areas of, of what we do and, and combines them, you know, with the racing and and the technology side and the, and the development stuff we've done. And, you know, it bottles it all into one. And, you know, it's a project I'm so excited about, you know, nervous about, but really looking forward to, to showing everyone what we're doing. And do you think um, next year you're going to, you know, have you got a feeling as to how you're going to be able to carry on? You did well at the Brest. Do you think you could be podiuming again throughout next World Cup season? Yeah, is definitely. That, goal? that is the goal. And, you know, finishing a season on a high and, 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 and kind of climbing is, is an amazing feeling. But you get to the end of the season, you're like, what next? I want more. And suddenly there's no races. But it means you go into the off-season buzzing for it. You know, it means you're, rather than like 
wanting time off and, and time to chill you, you you know you're counting down the days to when you start training and and you're riding and you're loving it and it means you're going to the next season you know with that fire still burning and, and looking forward to racing again and, and that's where I'm at right now perfect and a couple of last questions for you for someone listening to this it's obviously you know some of the guests we have on there like have these incredible lives and they're living the, the dream I guess of what a lot of kids will be listening to or even adults are just thinking oh, I'd love to race bikes professionally and you know, travel the world and go to all these amazing events and do all this cool stuff. But, you know, obviously it's not all sunshine and roses. What's the hardest thing about being G. Atherton, do you think? I think it's forcing yourself to do the things you don't want to do. You know, I think what I do is amazing when you're enjoying it, when you're loving it. But suddenly when you have to race or travel, when you're injured or you're, you know, you're not feeling it or, you know, you're a bit, you're sore from a crash and you have to push yourself through it sometimes that sometimes there are the times you think you know this is this is a pain in the ass and this I could be doing something I enjoy more but I you know I still say to this day we're very lucky about what we do and you know I think you get that with any job and the injuries are kind of a small downside to otherwise an amazing sport perfect that's a really nice answer I like the fact that you're sort of still so passionate about it all but also you know, you can recognise the, the negative sides of it, but they're far outweighed by the positives of what you get up to. Yeah, you know, there's there's a, there's a small downsides to everything, isn't there? But as long as, like you say, as long as the positives outweigh the negatives, then you're obviously onto a good thing, I think. Excellent. Awesome. Gee, I think that's a really nice spot to end it there. Okay. That cool. was great. Thank you very much. Hey, my pleasure. No worries. There we have it. Episode 10 in the bag. Double figures. Please, 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 if you enjoyed this episode, then share it with your friends. I know I say this every week and you're probably getting bored of me saying it, but it does make a difference. And it was really great to see the numbers take a little bit of a jump after the last couple of episodes. So if you're enjoying these, share them with your friends, put them on social media, tell people about them down the pub and get listening because it just inspires me to make more. I'll be back next week with another episode of Intriguing Beings with me. Rue Chater.